0: This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening.
1: Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources, and I'm joined today by Ohio Senator Rob Portman. He was first elected to the Senate in 2010, winning 82 of 88 counties. He's born and raised in Cincinnati, where he resides today with his wife, Jane. In 1996, Rob founded the Coalition for Drug-Free Cincinnati that's now known as Prevention First. The purpose of this organization was to keep young people free of substance abuse. And his fight against substance abuse continues to gain momentum today, more than 20 years later. So, Senator Portman, welcome.
2: Well, thanks, Greg. It's great to see you again. And as I told you uh, the first time we met, and I, I hope every occasion since, um, I appreciate what you're doing to help others uh, to avoid the tragedy and pain that uh, you have felt uh, with the loss of Sam. And as I told you, I, uh, I meet with parents and uh, friends and family members, brothers, sisters, all around the state, and. I'm continually impressed by those who take the the pain and the grief and channel it into something uh, positive, and uh, you know nobody does it better than you. So thank you for all your time and effort to help everybody uh, in our community to uh, deal with what now is at epidemic levels, uh, which is the drug issue and particularly the uh, opioid uh, epidemic. And uh, I'm happy to be on with you today to talk more about it.
1: Thank you, Senator.
2: So you've been
1: very active in the fight against the opioid epidemic that's plaguing our nation right now. Tell us just a little bit about why you're so passionate about this cause.
2: Because of families like yours, and uh, this includes friends, it includes, um, you know, in my family as in every family, we've had some issues with substance abuse. For us, it wasn't opioids, uh, but it's uh, more, uh, you know, alcoholism over the years. Uh, But frankly, I got involved in this because when I was first elected to Congress, which was 24 years ago, I had a uh, constituent come to see me, and her son had just died from an overdose. He was huffing gasoline and smoking marijuana with a bunch of friends. It was front-page news. And one thing that strikes me today, by the way, is when we have an overdose, it's rarely front-page news anymore because it it happens every few hours in Ohio. But um, this woman... Uh, lost her son. His name was Jeff Gardner. I still have his gold ID bracelet that she gave me on that day. She came to Washington uh, because she wanted to uh, talk about how to get more help and she had a gold ID bracelet for me and for President Bill Clinton who was president at the time. We attended a a conference of a group called CADCA with her, Community Anti-Drug Coalition of America, a group I later became very involved with. I was on their board. I still am very involved with them but it was my first exposure to the group and when she came to my office to uh, ask me questions I was ready for her. I had all the statistics on how much was being spent on drug interdiction, on how much was spent uh, destroying uh, crops in uh, Colombia, uh, how much was being spent on law enforcement and prosecution and she said, you know, how's that helping me? I, I'm in my community, uh, I called a meeting, nobody came, I go to my church, they're in denial Uh, They said, it doesn't happen here. I go to the school. They said they're worried about their their grade, their report card for the school if someone found out that there was drug use. And she said, I can't get people to help. And and I was, frankly, embarrassed that I didn't have a better answer for her. So I started researching it more and learning more about it and learning about the effect of drug use at the time. This was in the mid-1990s. It was not nearly the epidemic it is today, but even then, affecting everything, crime, crime. Welfare, um, education, work, jobs, and um, I came up with this idea of supporting community anti-drug coalitions because I believed that they were making a difference in prevention and education. And ended up starting my own coalition back home uh, that's still in existence. I chaired it for nine years. I was uh, on the board until about six years ago when I when I uh, left to go run for the Senate. But um, we ended up passing legislation called the Drug-Free Communities Act. Over a billion dollars has been spent. Uh, to create over 2,000 community coalitions around the country. It is making a difference, but frankly not enough of a difference to be able to avoid what has been a a huge uh, uh, issue of of these prescription drugs, then heroin, now fentanyl, coming into our community. So that's how I got started on it, Greg, and uh, I, I continue to take the lead on legislation. We passed a, you know, a half dozen different bills. The most recent one is called the Comprehensive Addiction and Recovery Act, which focuses on the opioid addiction crisis and how to get better prevention and education out there, but also better treatment and longer-term recovery and to help our first responders with with Narcan. So that's um, uh, how I got started, and it is a passion of mine, and it will continue to be. And I'm glad
1: that you mentioned that, the CARA Act. Congratulations on passage of CARA. And tell us where the funding stands, because there was a little lag in actually getting it funded. Mm-hmm. And so, where do we stand on that?
2: Yeah, we got we got fully funded in the appropriations bill for this year, and every year we're gonna have to fight for the appropriation. Uh, the legislation that was passed is as the way Congress works. You passed an authorization bill authorizing funding for something, and we came up with uh, new ways to deal with. Um, the full gamut based on evidence, based on five conferences we had in Washington on how to do better with prevention and education and treatment and recovery and and specific things like veterans courts and drug courts, helping pregnant women um, and helping with regard to training on Narcan. All this comes out of, again, national research, best practices, and uh, that's in place now going forward. But every year we'll have to fight for the funding. We've been successful in getting the funding this, this year. Uh, the next budget will be put together at the end of September. September 30th is a year end, so we're already working on being sure we have funding for the next year. Uh, it's $181 million of additional funding every year uh, just for the opioid issue. Uh, on top of that, though, we also got additional funding on really uh, uh, an urgent basis or even an emergency basis in this year's spending bill and next year's spending bill, $500 million in, in each year and that's over and above CARA, and that's to go directly to the states. So CARA funds um, community organizations. We just had a conference in Columbus this week where we brought together the uh, the HHS people from Washington uh, who will administer much of the CARA funding from the uh, Substance Abuse Mental Health Services, SAMHSA group in in Washington. We also brought uh, the Department of Justice in, uh, and then we also had there the Ohio folks, the Ohio Department of Mental Health and Addiction Services people were there, and uh, we talked about both the grant money that goes directly to nonprofits and to uh, individuals who are out fighting the good fight, um, which is CARA. Uh, so if you have a drug court in your community, for instance, you can apply for the CARA grants through that drug court. But we also wanted the state people there because the state is going to get some funding through this broader uh, uh, two-year grant, which is called the Cures Act. Uh, and under the Cures Act, again, it's 500 million bucks a year. Ohio will get, we think, about $26 million this year from the Cures Act funding. Uh, That's just a two-year commitment. That's not a change in the way the money is spent. It's just, frankly, responding to the crisis we have, and and I was a very strong proponent of that. I wanted to get the Cures Act done overall, but I wanted to be sure it had within it this funding to help immediately to be able to apply the tourniquet in states like ours. The funding goes to states that are most... uh, severely impacted. And unfortunately, Ohio is one of those states.
1: So in the local communities, you've got a lot of grassroots organizations. Is the funding also, is there a vehicle to, to offer funding to some of them as well?
2: Yes, that's under the CARE legislation. And the state may choose to provide some funding also uh, in the meeting. Uh, there were some, uh, some of the rural counties were expressing concern that maybe um, the idea was to send most of the funding to the larger cities or you know areas where there's more population uh, i don't know that, that decision has been made yet by the state i think the state's going to try to be sure that where you have a organization that's doing good work uh, and needs the help that they're going to get you know uh, some assistance so uh, but that's something that the state's going to decide on the care funding uh yes individuals can apply who are working in the nonprofit area who have a good organization that's you know dealing with these issues. Again, this is focusing on treatment recovery and veterans' courts and um, drug courts. I was with some folks yesterday who are in a rural county. They want to start a drug court, and they're going to apply. And uh, that's exciting, too, because we may be able to, as we did with the Drug-Free Communities Act, hopefully we can create some new um, opportunities in some of our counties in Ohio where there's not a drug court currently. Uh, as one example, through this drug court funding. Same with the veterans courts. Veterans courts are even more rare than drug courts and um, I've seen some great work by these veterans courts where veterans who have a substance abuse problem are surrounded by other veterans and their success rate is far higher uh, because of that. So I, I, I know it works and if we can get the funding to the right entities I know we will save lives.
1: Outstanding. So I didn't know that that funding was available to, you know, like I said, grassroots, smaller organizations such as Tyler's Light, Robbie's Voice, and, and the many others that uh, we have in our yeah. state. There was a Wall Street Journal, uh, a recent article that I read that talked about we've got approximately $5.5 billion in addiction recovery and mental health care funding that's kind of hanging in the balance with the proposal to repeal and replace – the Affordable Care Act. A lot of people are nervous about that. Mm-hmm. Can you allay our fears?
2: Well, I, I think that article, as I recall, uh, I think I saw it too, was about Medicaid expansion. Yes. Um, and so it wasn't about the Affordable Care Act specifically, but it was about the Medicaid expansion that happened within the Affordable Care Act. Right. And sometimes uh, people get confused about med- the Affordable Care because it is complicated, but you've got the uh, you know the regulations and the and the, and the mandates that, that apply to everybody. Then you have the exchanges. In Ohio, we have about 212,000 people on the exchanges. And the exchanges is a uh, you know a private sector exchange um, that hasn't worked well in Ohio because the rates are have gone up dramatically. And there's a high deductible typically that people are not happy with. Plus, we only have one insurer now in about uh, one third of our counties, maybe more now. Only one insurer because the insurance companies are pulling out because they can't make money on it. So they're uh, pushing some of that off to the, uh, to the uh, private employer market, where about 80-plus percent of people get their health care. But in addition to that, there is this ex- extension of the Medicaid program. So uh, in Ohio, um, that is the biggest direct impact of the Affordable Care Act on individuals because as opposed to the 212,000 people in the exchanges, uh, there are just over 700,000 people who have now been covered by this expansion of Medicaid so it's expanding it to uh, uh, single individuals who don't have family Um, it's extending it to people who are a little bit above the poverty line 100% of the poverty line uh, to 138% of the poverty line and that group of people uh, is taking advantage of using this Medicaid expansion for a number of health care concerns but one is uh, treatment Uh, both mental health treatment and substance abuse treatment. And uh, I am concerned that, uh, particularly given this epidemic, that we not uh, pull the rug out from under those people because it's hard enough to find insurance to cover treatment. And although Medicaid isn't perfect, and uh, many providers tell me that, um, as well as individuals who are in the system, uh, I think it's a necessary Uh, program right now. uh, Does it have to be uh, exactly as it is? No. In fact, it shouldn't be. It should be reformed. Governor Kasich has offered a reform proposal to uh, HHS uh, in the form of a request for a waiver to give the state more flexibility to be able to put together a better Medicaid program, in his view, and I think it can be better. I know it can be better, and I would certainly support that too. So that's the discussion now is how do you take uh, that part of the Affordable Care Act, which is not what most people identify with the ACA, but it's, it's where more Ohioans are covered by far than the exchanges, which is Medicaid expansion, and come up with a way to ensure those people have access to coverage and specifically, in, you know, given our discussion today and my passion for this, that they are able to get into treatment. Uh, I think there are 31 states that expanded, so you've got, um, you know, some states who have, some who haven't, and uh, it would be, what, 19 states that haven't? Um, and so there's another discussion going on in Congress about that. You know, those who come from states where they didn't expand don't feel like they should be punished uh, for making what they think was the right decision. There are only 20 of us on the Republican side who come from a state where there was expansion uh, out of 54 Republicans, so we're, we're not in a majority, and some of those 20 do not believe that expansion was a good idea and don't support it. So, you know, we've got to work cut out for us in explaining the importance of this program, and, and I spend a lot of time doing that with my colleagues. Um, again, not saying there shouldn't be improvements. You know, I'm for Medicaid reform. Uh, I think anybody who looks at it carefully should be, uh, and particularly giving, this, giving the states more flexibility, like Ohio has asked for, to be able to put together a program that fits us better here and hopefully has uh, better results for families because you take a more holistic approach and deal with trying to prevent some of these health care issues, including addiction, rather than, after the fact, stepping in in a much more expensive way, um, sure. which is what the government like to do. So it's uh, it's complicated stuff, uh, but, um, you know, we've got to uh, continue to educate people on the importance of having those treatment options. And for the states that haven't expanded, there are other options that perhaps uh, could work to uh, sort of make them whole. There's discussion of that, you know, how you could come up with other ways through whether it's uh, – Payments to hospitals, to, uh, to so-called dish hospitals for disproportionate share hospitals or other ways.
1: All right. So let's move along. The Chinese are fueling America's fentanyl crisis in a, in a big way. Traffickers purchase fentanyl, car fentanyl, and actually key ingredients to make fentanyl from China, which uh, apparently doesn't regulate the sales. Now, you introduced a, uh, a bill to stop fentanyl and carfentanil from coming into uh, into the country, the STOP Act. Tell us a little bit about that.
2: Yeah, it's, uh, it's important legislation that law enforcement uh, is excited about because it gives them another tool uh, that they need badly to be able to stop some of this poison coming in. It's not the silver bullet. Um, as long as we have a high demand in this country for drugs, I don't think anything you do on the supply side is going to be the silver bullet. I think we have to focus on the demand side, which is what we've talked about most of today which is the prevention and education side of this and then treatment for those who are addicted and you know better recovery services and so on but our legislation is very simple it says that this increasing menace in our communities which is fentanyl, carfentanyl, U4, synthetic heroin which by the way is probably uh, killing more people now than heroin in Ohio according to uh, the latest statistics we've seen very sad looks like Ohio may be number one in the country in terms of fentanyl overdoses and deaths, and that it's pushing out heroin in some communities. I was in Dayton uh, a week before last, and law enforcement there told me that their issue is fentanyl now. It's not heroin anymore. It's just amazing. It's happened quickly. It's less expensive uh, for the same kind of a effect. Uh, it's more deadly. It is unpredictable. Uh, as one father told me who lost a child to this, it's like playing Russian roulette now, because this fentanyl, a few flakes of it can kill you, Um, and it comes in by the U.S. mail system. So whereas heroin comes in primarily overland, primarily from Mexico, and um, I know Sam Quinones, the author of Dreamland, uh, will be here in Northeast Ohio soon. Uh, His book is, is a powerful story about the last decade and sort of how this happened, how we came to this situation, but unfortunately... It's even worse now than it was in the situation that that Sam uh, describes because now you have, through the mail system, an even more powerful, 30 to 50 times more powerful drug that is coming into our communities. One of the officers this week in Toledo from the DART uh, uh, Task Force, which is a great group in Toledo that's doing a good job on on getting people into treatment who are in the law enforcement uh, process, but she said that they're sprinkling the traffickers are sprinkling carfentanil now on marijuana and in marijuana as well, and they're having cases of overdose from smoking marijuana because of the carfentanil. So it's this why would they do that? Just to just to create more addiction and to create more uh, uh, in case of the traffickers more more customers and. Uh, it's just tragic. Uh, uh, the, the costs are relatively low and the impact is incredibly powerful and incredibly unpredictable. Again, if you're listening today and you are someone who is trying to make a decision about whether to seek treatment and try to change your life, or certainly if you're someone who's you know wondering about what this would be like, you should know that you are playing uh, with your life uh, even more so now than you were even... You know, a couple years ago, or even maybe a couple months ago, because this fentanyl, carfentanil, these synthetics are now in this, in the stream of of uh, drugs. Whether it's making them into a pill that looks like a prescription drug, whether it's uh, cutting it with heroin, whether it's putting it in marijuana, it's and it is deadly. A 14-year-old girl in Dayton overdosed and died a couple weeks ago uh, because she snorted what she thought was heroin, and it was heroin cut with carfentanil. Um, and she died immediately. Our legislation is very simple, it says because this stuff's coming in by mail uh, shouldn't we be able to stop it? And the more we researched it, the more we found out that traffickers use the US mail system rather than FedEx or UPS or another private carrier because under those private carriers the people that ship it have to put where it's from, what's in it, where it's going, they have to provide that information in advance and so what we're saying is let's do the same thing with the mail system because the traffickers are choosing the mail system because it doesn't have any of that information. And law enforcement's hands are tied. They can't check uh, thousands, even in some communities, uh, hundreds of thousands or statewide millions of packages. But they can target packages if they know more information about it, where it's from, what's in it, where it's going. And so that's what this legislation is about. It's called the STOP back, and it's meant to, Keep some of these poisons out of our community, but also raise the cost because this will be a cost to the traffickers and um, you know I think it 's just common sense greg i can 't believe we can 't get it passed. So it was introduced on a bipartisan basis. I have one other Republican and two Democrats uh, who are starting uh, on this project with me, and we hope to get it passed here in the next few months and The House has companion legislation we 've worked with them over the last year on this, and the House legislation is also bipartisan so my hope is we can get it to the president's desk, get him to sign it, and at least reduce the amount of this poison coming into our communities and increase the cost.
1: Let me ask you um, a follow-on question about that. They're, the Chinese are not only shipping in fentanyl and carfentanil, but they're also shipping in the uh, key ingredients to make fentanyl. And these ingredients are a component by the name of NPP and ANPP. And apparently, um, just 25 grams, for example, of NPP, the key ingredient in fentanyl, can be purchased for $87 today in China. And when you combine it with about 720 other chemicals that are domestically available, you have a pills that can be produced with a street value of over 800k. So, it's just unbelievable, the cost versus mm-hmm. suddenly the, the street value of this. And, and my question to you, Senator, is will the STOP Act also include these key ingredients? Can, can those also be a part of this bill? Mm-hmm.
2: There's also an issue, as I understand it, of trying to keep countries uh, from shipping those key ingredients into China. Uh, that some of the ingredients are being shipped in. Uh, So I think we can do it both uh, in terms of trying to block some of that raw material and also keeping the raw material, obviously, out of the United States. One of the reasons that I I mentioned earlier, you know, I don't think that the legislation on the supply side, uh, including the STOP Act, ultimately is the answer is that as long as there is a demand, there will be people who are evil and who are looking for uh, making a buck, figuring out a way to... To get this poison into our communities. Uh, Big concerns I have, Greg, is the possibility Mm -hmm. that we could start seeing some of these laboratories crop up here and it's very sophisticated right now and uh, it is mostly China, some India. There's a rumor, some in Mexico, but I I don't have that confirmed. Um, But the great fear is sort of what you're suggesting is you could end up having this raw material brought in here and then have uh, scientists here in this country create the same Kinds of sophisticated laboratories, and uh, we've got to do everything we can do to stop that because this is uh, this is killing our neighbors. Uh, by the way, it's not just killing our kids. As horrible as that is, with young people, it's um, you know it's killing people in their 30s and 40s and 50s. Uh, uh, I recently looked at the analysis uh, for one city in Ohio, and it was from a you know seven or eight year old kid who died of an overdose because his parents left heroin on a countertop to someone in his 70s who overdosed. Um, so it's, it's, as I said earlier, it's across the board in terms of where people live, in terms of their station in life, in terms of their age and their ethnicity. And uh, so, gosh, I, I, I think we've got to do everything. On, uh, on the synthetic drug side, I did pass legislation a few years ago with Dianne Feinstein to try to keep the bass salts uh, and others from being legal and sold over the Internet. Remember that issue yes, it yes, was hot absolutely. for a while and there mm-hmm. were some very horrible Ohio examples of that where people were using these yep. ingredients that were considered legal at the time we passed legislation to schedule those in other words to make these horrible drugs illegal uh, to put them under the schedule of the uh, uh of the federal government so that you know there there could be uh, a stop of these being sold on on the internet and at our at uh, you know convenience stores but then the scientists changed the molecular compound a little bit from these, these you know, products, and suddenly they're once again, you know, being chased by the FDA to try to figure out are they legal or not. So I have new legislation that says let's establish a commission at the FDA of distinguished people who are scientists who know what they're talking about who immediately could uh, alter what is scheduled and what is not to make sure that all these drugs that are you know killing our neighbors are are scheduled as illegal drugs, even though some scientist changes the uh, you know the, the the compound slightly with a new molecule or a new configuration. So but we've got to we've got to chase this, we've got to stay on top of it.
1: Yeah. Curbing over prescribing practices by physicians. Um, I, I think in the was it the mid-90s where um, pain became the uh, fifth vital sign, Mm -hmm. and physicians began uh, being compensated uh, in part based upon their ability to relieve pain. Mm -hmm. And so we got to a point where they overprescribed. Now is the trend
2: changing? Yes, it is changing, and thank goodness the trend is moving the other way now. Uh, I will say it's moving the other way to the extent that um, I get questions as I did this week from people who have chronic pain who come up to me and say, Uh, You know, you've gone too far, uh, Portman, (laughs) because I have chronic pain. I have a hard time now getting the relief that I need from uh, narcotic prescription pain pills. And, uh, you know, my answer to them is if you have a uh, medical uh, problem, you should be able to, you know, work with your doctor and figure out how to solve it. Um, I'm not telling you whether narcotics are necessary or some other things because there are some new pain medications coming on that I think might might be very effective for some of those people. But that's not the idea uh, if, uh, you know, seniors with chronic pain who rely on some sort of pain medication, we want to be sure it's medically um, appropriate. But we do need to crack down, and we have. I think in Ohio, someone told me recently, there's been a 20% decrease over the last year even, uh, maybe maybe a year is not the right amount of time, but a 20% reduction in uh, prescribing narcotic pain pills. Uh, I take that as a positive. <laughs> Uh, because Definitely. we were just out of hand. And uh, again, if you read this book, Dreamland, I, I told you earlier, Greg, I'm, I, I, I sell this book all the time, including on the floor of the Senate. But it's a great it book. talks I'm a sure. little about this, how yep. this happened. And, you know, the original medical paper that was uh, cited really was not well researched, saying that, um, you know, this was uh, an important way to, uh, to fight uh, certain kinds of pain. I mean, the, the horrible situation you and I both heard as we've been around the state talking to people is the parents who come up and say, "My, you know, my kid had his or her wisdom teeth taken out and then was given 60 pain pills and, and became addicted, you know, as a teenager and later turned to heroin as it was more accessible and less expensive, and the results were an overdose and a death. So, I mean, this happens. There's no question about it. Um, I know in the case of Sam, there was an accident or an injury, I think you told me, and, um, you know, it's just... Even today, I, I know we're doing a better job at it, but I, I must tell you, you know, I have friends and constituents who uh, tell me what happened to them, which is a doctor over-prescribing, and they had to say to the doctor, you know what, I, I don't want that. Is there something else? Um, and there is something else. You know, there are better ways and more, I'm uh, not a doctor, but more direct ways to deal with some kinds of pain than this, you know, broad-spectrum uh, uh, medication that, you know, in a sense masks the pain through a a prescription uh, narcotic. And I'm not saying that some people don't need it. Uh, And I'm not, you know, every time I talk to the drug companies, I push them on what do you have in the pipeline that's not narcotic that can deal with people who have chronic pain? Because frankly, over the last several decades, there have been very few advances in this area. And, you know, I, I would hope that there would be a commitment on the part of the drug companies to redouble their efforts, you know, to find alternatives that are not addictive.
1: Should warning labels be required for opioid prescriptions?
2: Yes. Yes. And
1: can we introduce some legislation to do that?
2: uh, Yeah, I I think that would be appropriate. I'm trying to think of what's specifically in the legislation there. There may not be anything specifically on that. The the prevention side of uh, CARA, again, going back to Comprehensive Addiction Recovery Act, CARA, has a new national awareness program on linking prescription drug and um, heroin and other opiate use because one thing we found was uh, we did a conference just on the prevention side that this was a major gap in learning that you know people didn't realize and still don't many although I'm sure uh, uh, you know thanks to your effort and other efforts here in Ohio it seems to me we're, there's a much more, more much more awareness of it now but just making that link, that simple link between the fact that when you are prescribed uh, a Percocet or some other drug that seems like it's, you know, appropriate for your ankle injury if you're a football player or your wisdom tooth, um, be careful because there is a link here. Uh, Your brain could be uh, affected for uh, for a lifetime. I think in the last, would that be five years, Certainly in, in Ohio, we've done a better job on uh, this unbelievable um, excess of prescription drugs. At one point, I remember when I first uh, had, got elected to the Senate seven years ago, we had our first town hall that, a uh, few months after I got elected, we brought the drug czar to Portsmouth, Ohio, because they were experiencing these issues of uh, over-prescribing on uh, prescription drugs. And at that time, there were shipments into Scioto County, which is where Portsmouth is, um, that would cover every man, woman, and child in, in, in Portsmouth to have, uh, you know, a full prescription of, of opioids. Mm-hmm. And obviously, just a, a huge abuse was going on. And You had these pain pills, uh, pill, pill mills, as, as we called them. So there's been a lot of progress on that. The pill mills have uh, been shut down for the most part. Uh, law enforcement. We got we got a grant for them from HIDA, which is a high-intensity drug trafficking to try to deal with it for Adams County and, and uh, Saudi County. And so I think there's been good progress made on that. Um, and I mentioned, the you know, less prescribing now also by uh, by doctors. But the big thing was at that point, as King Jonas's book talks about in Kentucky and even in Southern Ohio, the pill mills, people being lined up outside, sometimes in their pajamas, uh, as he said in his book. And... Uh, you know, it's just amazing that that you know that went on. Not that it was undetected, because I think people knew about it, but it was it was there was nothing done about it for 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 years.
1: Okay. So, what are the most important points that our listeners should know about how they can make a difference in the opioid epidemic?
2: Yeah, I mean everybody's got a role to play, and you know I've focused more on prevention and education over the last twenty uh, some years, but now we have. Uh, best guess, we think, is 200,000 people in Ohio who are addicted to opioids, so we've also got to refocus uh, efforts on, you know, what works and what doesn't work in terms of treatment and recovery. And the the broad uh, conclusion that that we've reached through our research and through conferences we had in Washington that base up, that are the basis for the CARE Act, is that longer-term recovery services is badly needed. And it's the first time that Congress has ever authorized any recovery funding. It's the first time we've ever you know sort of taking this on as a illness uh, you know a- acknowledging that this is not based on poor decisions that someone made this is based on an addiction which is an illness which is like other illnesses something that requires treatment uh, to be to be remedied so i think that's the main thing is that everybody has a role to play in making sure in their family that the information's out there that there's good awareness prevention education uh, so, if you don't have a group, start one. Um, and then with regard to treatment, you know, support the efforts in your community. Uh, I was at a church this morning in Cleveland, for instance, that works with a city mission there and tries to get more people into treatment. Uh, probably eight out of ten um, addicts in Ohio are, are not getting into treatment now. Uh, some of that's because, uh, you know, people just aren't ready. Uh, some people, it's a stigma. And that stigma needs to be removed. all of us need to face this issue, and then third, in some communities, there is not a treatment uh, option available, particularly in some of our rural communities. So helping on that treatment side, check it out in your local community, see what 's going on, see who 's involved. You know there are going to be churches and nonprofits and others. I think who will be involved and see if you can help them and Again, I would just focus on longer term recovery anybody who who looks at the numbers, I think it's pretty clear that The the high relapse rate, the recidivism, the number of people that aren't helped ultimately by some of these um, detox and treatment programs, their chances of success are far higher if they can get into a longer-term recovery program where they can get support from people. Uh, And if you are able to be one of those people supporting, that would be awesome. And then your drug courts. I mean, if you've got a community with a drug court, check into that, see how you can help. Uh, I'm really high on some of our drug courts. The use of Vivitrol is something I think is working extremely well in some of our communities, which is a drug, uh, as you know, that reduces the craving, and it's a -a once-a-month shot. and has a lot of advantages um, over some other uh, medication-assisted practices, uh, some of which are necessary. By the way, I'm not against, uh, you know, using other medication-assisted ways to get people tapered off of drugs, but I, I do think if you can support those local efforts of drug courts or veterans' courts, that's another way to be involved. So, look, there's uh, there's something for everybody to do, and uh, sometimes it's in your own family and sometimes in your own heart even, uh, but there's also a lot going on in our communities now, thank goodness, to push back. And I, I just hope what we have done in terms of the legislative efforts in Washington is finally beginning to make, you know, Washington a better partner with the place where this is really going to be solved, which is in our communities, uh, in our families, uh, person by person. That's where the real progress is going to be made in turning the tide. And we have no choice but to turn the tide here. We cannot allow this to continue. It's getting worse, not better. Uh, it is tearing families apart and destroying communities. And again, I want to end by just saying thank you again to you for your uh, extraordinary Uh, Commitment of time and energy and resources, your passion for this issue, and I wish you the best.
1: Well, thank you so much for your time today, Senator Portman. Uh, We really appreciate it, and I know our listeners appreciate it. So, terrific. We've been visiting today with Senator Rob Portman, who has been a leader in drug prevention for over 20 years. First, as the founder of the Coalition for a Drug Free Greater Cincinnati, now known as Prevention First, to help keep young people from substance abuse and then as author of the Drug-Free Communities Act, which has provided more than a billion dollars to community coalitions around the country over the last 20 years. Most recently, Rob authored the Comprehensive Addiction and Recovery Act, which was signed into law in July of 2016 and authorizes $181 million annually to increase prevention and education, expand drug treatment, and promote community support services for those in recovery. My name is Greg McNeil. Thank you for joining us for this Cover 2 PPT podcast. That's people, places, and things making a difference in the opioid epidemic.
0: Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover 2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources, And is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.